random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. Gosh darn it, he is. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And joining us on the other end of the tin cannon string is a multi-time guest of this program. We are joined with the great Danny Fingeroth. Danny, good evening. Good evening. Uh, Thank you for having me back. So... But but, but I was... I was thinking it was going to be an audio thing, so I got all dressed up, and I have my makeup person here. But it's okay. I, 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 I spent under $5,000 getting my look uh, just perfect for you guys. Get now some pictures audio. I will. and a great setting behind you. Even if we fabricate that, go out to it and have a nice dinner. Well, yeah. I, will, I will say, Danny, the <laughs> yeah. red on your bow tie really brings out the glasses on your face. Well, thank you. And, uh, you know, especially when the bow tie uh, revolves like a propeller. Oh. It's actually the... You know, just that engine alone cost me a couple thousand bucks. (laughs) So part of why I asked you to do the show today, we had had you on in the past talking about the Stan Lee biography, among many other topics. But lately, as I've repeatedly brought up on the program and as of this recording on July 12th, I ended up getting on a really big Spider-Man, Spider-Man kick. And since starting uh, reading the books again from the very beginning with Amazing Fantasy number 15, in the post uh, wave for myself of watching Spider-Man Far From Home, I've been reading a lot of Spider-Man, ladies and gentlemen, and I've been going through the 1980s of Spider-Man, a very interesting time, and I absolutely love the mid to late 1980s era of Spider-Man. There's just something very special about it. Early 80s, eh, eh, there's a lot of uh, a certain character by the name, I believe, of uh, Jane Whitman, who... I cannot stand whatsoever. Jane and, Whitman, not Jane. Yeah. What's Good, Whitman, but not Jane, mm. was it? Well, no, Deb Whitman, Deb, Deb Whitman. Whitman. There you go. We just did our Thor Love and Thunder episodes. I'll blame it on that. <laughs> but It's my fault. I mentioned Black Knight, and then he just went kaplooey here. It happens. Right, there you go. Jane, Dane. But in regards to uh, that era of Spider-Man, I'm in love with reading some of that stuff. And I see your name ever so slightly on, you know, as an editor on titles, and then every once in a while I'll see you writing the title, and it's just such a magical time in the world of Spider-Man, and in 1980s Spider-Man, in the early 80s, we see a lot of characters that are a part of Spider-Man's regular everyday life, a Harry Osborn, a Flash Thompson, a uh, Mary Jane Watson, a... uh, Aunt May! No, she shows up a little bit more. Betty uh, Brant slash Leeds... They all disappear, and we see new ancillary characters, and that's fine. That's, you know, the real world. Not everyone's going to stay around, but I love that during your time, you brought back the characters that made Spider-Man what he is. Now, when you say, uh, I don't, you said you see my name ever so slightly. I think yeah. Think slightly, or, or, or were you being facetious? There? Is it not there? I mean, Well, I'm on the first page, and then I disappear, go right back into the comic book. Oh, good Lord. So. Oh, okay. But you know what I mean. <laughs> well, I guess I we don't. do now. <laughs> Well, if you do and I don't, that's that's even that's a problem. Yes, it is. No, but I just love that that era is so ever evolving. You know. 
Um, is that a question? <laughs> eh, it's more of like a, just a declarative <laughs> statement. Jumping Conver- off point. Uh, well, you know, it, it what happened, and it really, um, I think, goes back to uh, Jim Shooter and Tom DeFalco, really. Because, um, um, and I'm not sure who had the original idea, but it, Shooter, when he came in, and it took him a couple of years, I think, from when he started as editor-in-chief to get all this going, but he he kind of modeled the Marvel editorial department on the DC, what DC had been doing in the 40s, 50s, 60s. I'm not sure what they were doing in the 70s. You know, they might have uh, changed up, but the idea was you would have, you know, if a character or a team had multiple titles, then the same editor should edit those titles, which may seem like a no-brainer now, but it was not it was not standard in the industry. So Spider-Man, say, had at that point three uh, Amazing Spider-Man, uh, Spectacular Spider-Man and Marvel team-up, uh, plus miniseries and annuals. But they were split up among three, I think, among three different editors. So um, at some point, I think Jim was able to, uh, the, the editor-in-chief, I guess he just had to you know, say, let's do it. He, he wanted a single editor to supervise all the Spidey titles, just like there was a single editor supervising the Avengers titles and the X-Men titles. So, uh, and uh, and he hired uh, Tom DeFalco to do that. So Tom really, um, you know, it's like a chicken and egg thing. Tom is one of the people, you know, one of the maybe five people on the face of the earth who I think understand Spider-Man uh, better than, than anybody else. So whether that came from before he was the editor or whether that developed while he was editing it uh and then he later would go on to write a lot of spider-man i couldn't really say but he um he was the right guy for that job and then when he was promoted to be um executive editor um that's when i was promoted from being an assistant editor who was also editing some comics on my own to be the Spider-Man editor, so Tom put this really, um, Tom and, and his writers and artists and assistants put this really strong structure in place, uh, which really uh, uh, exists to this day. It, 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 Like I said, it seems like just an obvious thing, you know, if you have one character with multiple titles, have the same editor, but that that is not how things were for a long time. And, you know, one of the things about that era, and by the way, you mentioned, Tom, uh, as of this recording on July 12th, uh, you know, heaven forbid anything happens, but, like, we're supposed to be recording with Tom tomorrow. So oh, it's really appropriate that, you know, again, I'm on that very big Spider-Man kick. I'm actually going to try and contact Ron Friends again as well just to have him on because he's a big staple of that era too. Oh, so, sure. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, going through all this stuff, one of the other things, though, about this era is, you know, the relationships relationships with the characters. And again, as I'm going through this, characters make their returns. Mary Jane Watson returns. And for the longest amount of time, I did not like Mary Jane, you know, through this reread. And, you know, just very much the uh, party hardy, she doesn't care, every, everything's a joke, blah, blah, blah. And I like that during, you know, the time when you're involved, you know, all of you guys you, Jim, uh, Tom, there's an evolution of the character. Like, she changed. She matures. And I appreciate seeing that, and it makes me remember why when I was growing up, you know, watching the Spider-Man animated series on Fox and seeing all that stuff and seeing that personification, which 
all of you guys like helped mold seeing that character mature and grow up I love seeing that because I've also had like a lot of people in my life that are very pro Gwen Stacy and they're just like no no never forget Gwen Stacy <laughs> so <laughs> but for yourself out of all of uh, his love interests who is the one that you would go to and be like that is the penultimate love interest for Peter Parker wow you know that's Believe it or not, that is a question that I don't think anybody has ever asked me. That's that that's um, you you uh, that, that's an incredible uh, accomplishment. Thank you. Who is my favorite? Uh, boy, oh boy, oh boy. Um, you know, it's tempting to say Mary Jane because they ended up together. Gwen, you know, Gwen is most famous for getting killed, right? I mean, yeah. she. Um, uh, you know, I'll I'll throw in like a uh, you know a wild card here. Um, Please not Deb Whitman. And say <laughs> and say Betty Brant. You know, yeah. Uh, that there's there's one of my favorite moments in any Spider-Man comic is um, forget the issue number. I right? know I should be ashamed of myself. One of the, obviously one of the Ditko stories, and um, I think. Spider-Man maybe has finished uh, fighting the Scorpion and changed back to Peter, and he's got his arm in a sling, and um, and and uh, and he's uh, I think webbed Jonah to the ceiling or webbed his mouth shut, something mm-hmm. like that. And uh, Betty is hiding behind the desk, and Peter so you know sees her and um, and sits down uh, next to her, and they ha- I mean it's. It's it's beautifully drawn, and, you know. It's really choreographed wonderfully by Ditko, and then Stan's dialogue is just so perfect. You know, put your head on my shoulder, and uh, oh, Peter, I never knew you could be so uh, romantic. And he says something like, "Oh, you know, you, you don't." He says, "You know, it's, it's all it's all it's almost like out of a, a Thin Man movie or something." You know, <laughs> it's it's just it's just pitch perfect. And and then of course that you know their relationship ended up I think um, Betty had a brother who was a gangster and that uh, forced her to to oh the, I think um, oh because Peter um, was always getting beaten up and nearly killed uh, taking photos she hadn't figured out he was Spider Man and and she realized she couldn't be with him because that was too much like her pet you know it was very. It was it was really the uh, the soap opera and the action and the adventure um, were were played up um, to a wonderful degree. So in some ways, you know, uh, maybe it's the Peter and Betty. I one of the things during my reread as well with that. There's one panel type, and I'm going to send it to you later on. But like, he does a really good job, Ditko, of like recreating this panel over and over and over with the Betty and Peter dynamic where she's yelling at him and he's always looking sad. And it's like every <laughs> I I ha, I was like noticing it after a while. I'm like, I would take screenshots of them because I like how Ditko draws like the side of the face. And I'm like, okay, maybe I could steal that technique. And then I noticed I screenshotted that three or four times. And then I realized, oh, my God, he does that a lot. Why is she always yelling at him? <laughs> That's interesting. And, and there's no other... Is there no other character over over those uh, Ditko issues that was yelling at him like that? No, and I'm just like, wow. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Because, you know, Betty, and again, a lot of this story evolved uh, over the years, so I'm not sure how much to really... Uh, but I think it evolved because it was, it, was, it was there sort of, um, you know, under the surface. I think they had... I think, I think they were getting some flack that it seemed like... Um, 
you know, Peter was 16 years old and dating someone who you would think would be in her mid-20s as, uh, as, as Jonah's secretary, you know. Although, of course, it's the other way around. People might not question it, but yeah. I think there was some... And so somewhere along the line, they established that Betty, because her family was desperately poor, dropped out of high school, and so she was actually uh, around Peter's age, even though she was working a full-time responsible job as Jonah's secretary. So, you know, I thought that when Peter was leading up to saying or asking you, Danny, who's the penultimate Peter Parker love interest, I thought he was building up to ask the question, well, who could have been responsible for saying, or was it a consensus between you creators? All right, we got to have Mary Jane get more mature. So let's I write love- her, you know, in bring let's bring her up to speed or get her get her aging that way. Uh, well, I, I think, uh, I mean, look, Mary Jane was in and out of the series, but even if you go back to the... Jerry Conway and Ross Andrew era, uh, there was there was that point where um, I think right after Gwen, and a lot of these I've I've not looked at the stuff as recently as you, but there was that period where Gwen had died, and and uh, and and I think um, had Peter maybe Peter had asked her to marry him then, and she turned him down. But there's that scene though where she comes to see him at his apartment. She realizes. He like yells at her and 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 she leaves and then uh, she kind of um, you know trepidatiously comes back and you know you, you know you can see there's a lot going on emotionally and then uh, I think the door is shut. I may be mixing up a couple of stories, but I think that was there. And I mean, it's really the Marvel thing since you know since Stan, if not going back even to you know the '40s, some of the uh, Submariner's story, but you know, more, I guess more of a of a of a '60s thing with Stan and Steve and Stan and Jack, where um, sort of the whole point, right? If the if the model for a superhero story or a comic book story had been the Mord Weisinger and Jack Schiff edited um, Superman and and Batman stories, where and even and you know, I mean the whole the DC line in general, sort of what they sold and what I bought as a child, um, was these very plot dense stories. So you'd you know, you'd have like a six page story that was just full of not only plots but then a lot of the especially the Julie Schwartz edited edited comics would have all this uh scientific uh uh, explanation, you know, the John Broom, the Green Lantern stories, and and, and, and the uh, Gardner Fox Flash written stories. So they crammed in all this story with very little personality development and very little um, human interest beyond the very basic, uh, you know, Clark has a, uh, Lois has a crush on Clark, on Superman, but can't stand Clark or doesn't respect Clark. That's kind of the, that stuff, um, and then and then the Marvel comes in, and they, right? They take they they stretch out the stories, but they give you all this character stuff, and it deepens the characters. So you have, um, you have say in the very beginning of the Fantastic Four, you have Sue Storm, uh, technically I guess even in, even from issue one, engaged to Reed Richards, but then she meets the Submariner, and there's this thing going. Going on between them, that's that's uh, smoking. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and again, it wasn't like 
you know, it wasn't like Archie Andrews having to choose between Betty and Veronica. Mm -hmm. This was much more in the realm of like actual human relationships. Uh, you know, uh, not you know, very non-comic, but more like soap opera, more like uh, movies that uh, for for grown-ups. You know, so it was so so that Mary Jane would develop more layers and more texture um, made a lot of sense. And it's funny because you mentioned during the. Uh the Jerry Conway run in the very beginning, I believe, with the, uh, I think in that era, because I remember seeing, you know, with the whole door slamming thing, she gets upset, but then she has to turn back on to being the peppy personality. That's such a great, small character development that you see with her. Right, and, that, and then that came to its culmination. I mean, it, I, I mean, look, I, I, you know, a minute ago, I was sort of making fun of uh, Archie Comics, but actually Archie Comics, are some of the most popular comics through the ages, and you know, and they do, you know, you know, I, I think lately they've been uh, more mature, but say historically, Archie comics have been sort of this light-hearted view of uh, Archie, and sort of, you know, Betty is the more practical, uh, you know, quote-unquote plain Jane, and Veronica is the exciting rich chick, you know. Although I think they both have the same face, pretty much. You know? <laughs> um, but uh, so um, so that you play these stereotypes, um, but if you just kind of, you know, so Tom, you know, Tom DeFalco had worked for many years as an editor and writer at, at Archie, and I, and I think he, you know, I think uh, that helped him uh, learn how to do relationship comics and, and romance comics. You know, um, sort of to move it to a, to a more complex level than the, the traditional Archie stories. You know, who knows? Maybe tomorrow he'll say that I'm completely wrong. But uh, it seems to me that uh, um, so when he came into the mix, because because Tom uh, did that story. Uh, if you're reading the '80s stuff, then, then maybe you've read all my uh, my pasts. Remember mm -hmm. all my pasts remembered. Although you know. Uh, although there's a little ambiguity in the last letter of the word past, so many people thought it was all my past to remember, but I, I don't think that <laughs> was the, I don't, I don't think that was the actual title. It was all my pasts remembered, which is easier, easier to write than to say. And, and in that one, that, um, that might be, again, I, uh, you know, you, you're, you've been reading this more recently than I have. That certainly is the most in-depth we ever got to Mary Jane's uh, background and the tragedies and traumas of her childhood and adolescence and her family. And then, and then I think that was expanded even more in that uh, graphic novel that um, David Michelinie and Alex Saviak did, um, Parallel Lives. So I think it, you know, that's, that's how you can keep any franchise entertainment going, whether it's a TV show or series of movies where you I mean, I mean look uh, I guess the, the you know the textbook one would be much more relatively recent where you took uh, Agent Coulson who uh, seemed to be just uh, literally a disposable he's you know he was so disposable they killed him <laughs> in, the, in the movies right he was mm -hmm. he was kind of this uh, you know well-meaning uh, skilled you know uh, but but not not leading man, not classic leading man type, uh, 
character, and, and they kill them, and, that, and then then they bring the guy back for um, for the Agent of Shield uh, TV show. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that that that's certainly somebody. You know, look, I I I don't have access to uh, the notes from when they were making those movies, but it certainly didn't seem like they were planning to kill Coulson and then bring him back as the you know headlining his own TV show. Um, but that that's 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 really a textbook thing of here's a guy who's kind of two dimensional and uh, and just kind of a throwaway character, and then suddenly you're now developing him, developing him to a much deeper and wider level. If we can jump over to another character of yours that you've been associated with, Danny, and that would be um, Dazzler. We mentioned before we started recording, actually, about uh, underused and perhaps maybe a future MCU character. How do you feel about about Dazzler? You know, it was a challenge to write that character. You know, she um, there were a lot of different agendas going on with with the character. Um, uh, but I sort of sensed that what I needed to do was to, um, you know, maybe maybe because it's my natural inclination or just seemed to be uh, what was appropriate was to to find the Peter Parker in her, you know, um, to 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 find the the humanity and uh, the inner conflict in somebody. Um, and it was built into the to, to the character, sort of, should she do what her father wanted her to do and go to law school, or should she be an entertainer? Um, you know, but I but I but I did find funny. I've read I've reread the stuff recently because I've been writing introductions. It, they, there are two volumes of Dazzler Masterworks. I'm not sure has the second one come out. Oh uh, yeah, it did. Oh, it did I? Well, anyway, I wrote I wrote the uh, forwards for both of those, um, and it was interesting because there was. You know, there was a certain amount of pressure to make it just sort of a cheesecake kind of character. Um, but, you know, she was very much in the Marvel Universe and had kind of a a um, classic kind of conflict, um, of what she thought she was destined to do, what she wanted to do, what fate seemed to be pushing her. In, in the direction of so so it was an interesting uh, challenge to get the depth to her and yet um, there was also the commercial feeling that uh, uh, you know that that she had to have some kind of sex appeal you know she I mean let's face it Dazzler took a lot more showers and baths than your typical superhero I mean, that's just <laughs> she she was very clean you know um, uh, so so that was. But I mean, you know, it, 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 she did have that similar. Um, the thing she didn't have, which maybe um, led her to kind of have this almost permanent indecision, was she did not have an Uncle Ben moment. You know, luckily for her, you know, Gosh, yeah. you know, she she didn't have a relative or friend uh, or planet that got killed that she then had to. Um, you know, spend the rest of her life making up for. So it was, you know, so in that sense, she was maybe even more real than Spider-Man because, you know, luckily, uh, you know, uh, most people's conflicts and and decisions about life uh, don't involve somebody, you know, them feeling that they allowed somebody to get murdered. You know, so 
So in a way, Dazzler had a more uh, realistic. <laughs> I know it's re- realistic and Dazzler are not always <laughs> two words you hear together, but it was it was a challenge and it was, and it was interesting uh, to write that character. You know, um, especially it was, you know, it was a character not unlike years later the New Warriors, where within fandom and even within professionaldom there was a certain amount of dismissing of the character before they even appeared. You know, I mean, I mean, look, let's face it. Um, probably, you know, maybe, maybe it's different now, although I don't know, but certainly back in the 80s, you know, maybe comic book, maybe the comic book creative pool, as it was then, as talented as it was, maybe they're not the people you should go to for cutting-edge uh, music uh, entertainment, you know? <laughs> um, aside from the fact that, uh, I don't know if you know this, but comics are a silent medium, but aside from that, you know, uh, maybe we weren't the people who were right on top of what was happening in the uh, in the clubs and the uh, and the discos and and, and the uh, record companies, you know. So, uh, you know, and 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 although she was never, as far as I can recall, she was never actually. I think by the time she came out, disco was on its way to being dead, if not already dead. And so the disco title. You know, she she was supposed to tie in with various music uh, uh, figures who there were deals that were made and unmade. And, uh, and finally, after all the deals fell through, uh, one, there was one with, supposedly with Bo Derek and one with um, uh, one of the disco divas. I forget which one. But, um, you know, it was a lot. She was supposed to be, you know, tied in and played in, a, in, a, in movies and TV shows by real-life uh, uh, music celebrities. Right away, I thought of somebody like Donna Summer. I think Donna Summer. I okay. Think probably, yeah. Sure. Um, and th- those deals all fell through. Disco, you know, uh, was on the way to dying. It's not already dead. And yet um, she still was wearing, you know, uh, a disco, you know, uh, disco wear costume and kiss. You know, I don't know. I don't know where the kiss makeup came from, but uh, it, it had a disco look and feel, even though she wasn't. Uh, I think uh, there were even some stories that that were premised on, uh, not premised, but uh, you know, one of the things she did was she like zapped her her laser beams against one of those uh, mirrored uh, globes, you know, mm-hmm. and and uh, and sent uh, you know, laser energy all over the place. Like I said, you know, these are Although I read them relatively recently, they're all kind of mushing in my mind to some degree. But so it was. Uh, so that was the character was a, was a challenge. Um, I, I think I think especially, you know, since you know movies and TV shows and cartoons have sound. I think I think there's a case to be made, uh, you know, for a character like the, or even not a character like the you know, for the Dazzler, but. You know, I just think you should make sure that the people writing it and and drawing and designing it have some uh, interest in and uh, expertise in, in in current music. Well, it just dawned on me. You mentioned the uh, the kiss makeup of Dazzler. She, uh, I believe, the character was created through uh, Casablanca Records, right? Right. They had uh, Kiss on their Kiss label. On their label. Point. So that that I don't know if it's intentional, oh, but and Donna Summer and yeah. the Village People. Yeah. You know, there are things that I sort of 
No, because I was in the building, but I wasn't in the room when these meetings and phone calls. So, you know, so a lot of what I'm saying is like second and third hand. But, uh, you know, it, it, it seems pretty clear that we, you know, I mean, you know, it seems like it's pretty common knowledge. that yeah, so the idea was to somehow get involved with Neil Bogart and Casablanca. And, uh, uh, you know, these these things have a way of morphing, whether it's the, a particular financial deal or, or public taste in, in, in pop music. So I, I think that's the, that's the key kind of thing, is to be uh, on top of trends and, and, and uh, you know, and not, and not get stuck in... Uh, I, mean, I mean, it's one thing for Superman to dress like a wrestler from, like, the 19... you know, from the 1910s. I think that's sort of... You know that that's so old that it's new. You know that Superman dresses like a wrestler or a or a um, or an acrobat from uh, from a traveling sideshow at the early part of the 20th century. It's sort of that's been forgotten. And now when you see somebody dressed like that, you go, "Oh, that's Superman's outfit." You know, but um, but <laughs> but I think you couldn't really get away with that. Uh, with with uh, modern music and entertainment trends. Yeah, maybe there was uh, an attempt to cross over into you know multi music genres of of Kiss being the rockers that they were, and of course the disco that was on its way out. Or if she was just trying to be a groupie in the Kiss band. Ah, uh, you know that's all subtext. When you write your uh, your Dazzler miniseries, you can uh, yeah. you can you can explore that. You know, of course that would then make her, you know, about sixty. So you might you might need to. You know, uh, what do they call that? Change some of the topical references. And, <laughs> you know. Exactly. And then it, and then why don't we include and make them a girl group? We can include Jubilee. We can include Boom Boom and maybe even Dagger, and we'd have a real, real rocking uh, girl group they, there. They, there you go. Okay. That's, uh, that's, uh, that, that's commercial gold. You're, uh, you're giving away those ideas for free. Now let's get back to the countdown. Okay. <laughs> oh, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows. One, Fantastic Voyage, where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice. Or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. It's funny, though, because in regards to... Uh the character of Dazzler, she was intended, if uh, you all remember, to be the very first Marvel motion picture character. And it's funny, she, other than, I believe, in a mini cameo appearance in the ill-fated Dark Phoenix movie, she hasn't had a movie made of her. I mean, are there characters in the background in some of those uh, movies or shows that, that people think might be the Dazzler, or is that... Just that one appearance. Uh, when she was in Dark Phoenix, because I'm, uh, I'm going to imagine you, like every every other uh, self-respecting film goer, did not see Dark Phoenix. So um, let's be no, honest. No, I, I actually saw it. I saw oh, Dark really? Phoenix. I'm Thank sorry. you. I'm sorry to hear that. No, stop. 
I know it was a terrible movie, but um, <laughs> in regards to that, the uh, she was the one with the uh, lights in the uh, campfire scene. Uh huh. Yeah, and then, and they were playing that really cool song. I'm like, oh, I wonder if that song will be available. It's considered lost media, ladies and gentlemen. Lost media? Yeah, they have modern it? time and day. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, they have lost medium nowadays, Eddie. <sighs> Did anybody call her uh, Allison or, or anything like that in the in that show, or just it was left to your imagination? I think she was listed in the credits as uh, Allison Blair. Uh, Dazzler. Oh, interesting. But she was like doing the whole you know light show kind of right. thing with the, out of her hands. And Dazzler is such a cool character. You can do a Dazzler movie. Like I've heard rumor and innuendo over the years, like we might do a Lady Gaga Dazzler movie, and I'm like, okay, go for it. Mm-hmm. But now she's you know being courted to play uh, Harley Quinn in Joker Two, uh, Electric Boogaloo, which. <laughs> Whoa! Oh man! Yeah. Well, like I said, she was. She, they could probably do more now. Yeah, you're right. She was. You know, again, having a, having a. Uh, you know, a music character. It's not impossible, right? I mean, if somebody, um, writes expressively and somebody draws expressively, you can, I guess, make up for the lack of. Of sound, I mean, certainly the, with the Black Bolt character, Kirby and, and Lee were brilliant at making that uh, that work. That even though you couldn't hear him, you could imagine his voice uh, shattering mountains. Um, but but it is a, you know, the I was involved with um, I was the assistant editor, associate editor on on the Xanadu movie adaptation, um, and that was that was that was that was tricky. I mean, Xanadu, uh, the movie has its own. Has its own problems and its own fanatic uh, following, uh, but you know I think we were aware of the challenge that even though we had terrific uh, writer J.M. DeMattis and you know uh, Jimmy Janes and a crew of terrific uh, artists and colorists, I think we just realized that you know maybe too late, maybe because we'd already contracted to <laughs> publish it, but. Hmm. Maybe a, a comic adaptation of a movie musical, um, you know, that's not Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz, for all its great music, also had a strong plot and and, and, and script, and, and, and Marvel and DC did that joint version of it, and, and it, had a, it had the kind of a story um, that, that the music... You could, you could do a comic story, I think, without the music, but Xanadu was a little... <laughs> A little harder. I mean, you could so. play you could play the uh, forty five, you know, of Xanadu over and over. Oh, there you go. The um, <laughs> album we got comp copies of the soundtrack uh, album. That was that was a pretty good album, uh, as, I, as I recall. In fact, it's a place where no one dared to go. <laughs> was, that, was Xanadu a place where no one was that the lyric? Yeah. And now we are here in yeah, Xanadu. Well, that, yeah, now that I'm now that we're here, now that we're near you're near in Xanadu. Wow, that's a unbelievably Danny, Danny Finger off the Libby Newton John I've ever heard. Danny, I appreciate your sing songiness of it because when Daddy, Eddie did the uh, spoken word version, I'm like, No, you gotta do it Xanadu. Well, you know, that was one of my favorite uh, you know, strange story, you know, it was Joel Silver was the producer of that movie, and that was before he was Joel Silver. He was just Joel Silver. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you know, you work on a project, and you, and, you, and you become really, whatever the project is, you become really into it if you're doing your job, you know, because you sort of have to live in that world. And I had actually 
written a lot of, you know, it was a Marvel super special, so a lot of backup articles, and I did a lot of research. I went to the uh, to visit the headquarters in Manhattan of uh, R. Greenberg Associates, who was the same company that did the uh, title credits on the first Superman movie, you know, so they were very hot at the time, and they are very nice people, did great work, and so I was really psyched, and everybody, everybody was, everybody was psyched, you know, it was, it was um, and we were rushing to put it together. I remember uh, Walt and Louise Simonson um, almost missed their honeymoon because we were so close to the deadline, and Weezy was was my boss and the editor, and and uh, we finally got it out the door. And and then uh, at some point uh, shortly after that, uh, Joel Silver comes and uh, brings us all to. Um, see a screening of the movie in this you know we went to this uh, fancy uh private screening room in midtown manhattan uh whatever the whatever the uh, uh studio that that uh, that has put that had produced the movie and we sat there as it played and it was kind of like the audience in springtime for hitler and the producers you know, we, we just kind of What's going on here? Yeah, because you know we were so into it. You know, just we'd worked on this thing and put our heart and soul into it and worked uh, very hard and and uh, yeah. But all we had to work from, all we had to go by was a script and and a lot of stills. You know, there was uh, and and maybe I, I don't even know if we even heard any music, but it was really uh, just one of those very straight. You know, we all just sat there with our jaws open like. Huh. And then, and then, uh, as opposed to hanging around and schmoozing afterwards, we all suddenly realized we had to get back to the office immediately. <laughs> we all we all had important deadlines. We had to get back to the office. Now slides <laughs> come up. Oh my god! And, and yet, um, in the music of that, I am partial to the ELO song because I had the oh. forty-five. I'm alive. You know, the music was terrific. I mean, and, and and actually, the production numbers were the best part of the movie. You know, mm-hmm. it was. Uh, and on paper, like, well, Gene Kelly, Olivia Newton-John, all these different music. But it was a very, uh, <laughs> it has developed a cult following. It never, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's certainly, you know, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have mentioned it if it wasn't for the fact that it had, that it was, that it was remembered. Um, but it was, it was a very strange uh, and, and in retrospect, amusing thing. You know, it probably didn't seem. Uh, and Joel Silver seemed to have done okay for himself in the ensuing years. So yeah, I, yeah. It, I don't think that hurt his career. And just coincidentally enough, earlier this year, I came across and picked up a copy of that Marvel Super Special of Xanadu. <laughs> so, yeah. Ne- never change, Eddie. Never it's, change. It's, it's, it's cray-cray. But earlier, I think Peter <laughs> mentioned Dazzler the movie, and I said, oh, yeah, there was a Dazzler graphic novel. Was it subtitled that? I forgot. Yeah, it's called Dazzle the Movie. That, mm-hmm. that I, I had already left the book at that point, so Shooter wrote that and yep. Springer... Uh, you know, Springer and Coletta drew it, so I, uh, you know, I know it exists. I read it, but it wasn't uh, wasn't anything had anything to do with. Yo, and you know, speaking of Jim Shooter, you just mentioned uh, earlier the uh, Superman uh, film. Were you there when he had had everyone go into the screening of Superman? Um, I was in the building. <laughs> but but I was. Uh, when did that come out? It came out. Seventy eight. Uh, Seventy eight. Yeah. Seventy eight. Interesting. I was in the building, 
but I was working in the British department, which was uh, the department that put out mostly reprint and some new material for publication in England. But by but it came out like Christmas '78. Was it a holiday movie? That I'm not sure. I just know the year. Eddie, no, it got me there. I think it was a holiday movie. So mm-hmm. in theory, I you know I had not fully moved into the mainstream editorial till the very beginning of 79. So so I I don't remember being at that, and, I, and it's probably, I wouldn't have, because even, I think we were wrapping up the British um, stuff, and then I was sort of doing a, um, I had a combination job, um, where I was partly, I was a shared assistant between Sal Brodsky and Jim Shooter, but not at that point. At, at the beginning of 79, is when I started uh, I was the reprint editor and a lot of titles and doing a lot of stuff with Star Wars um, and a half dozen other things. So I would not, you know, uh, no. So I, I do not remember, and I don't think I was invited to that, and I don't think I even knew it happened. As I was not, like I said, I was in the building, but I wasn't part of the mainstream editorial flow yet. Yeah, because he's you know mentioned on our show and uh, other interviews as well, where he's like. I took everyone to go see the movie, and then Stan Lee was upset with me because he's like, I want it to come along. <laughs> <laughs> I could see all those things happening. Yeah, it would make it would make sense. But I do think it came out Christmas. You know, I think it was a, the big Christmas movie that year. Mm-hmm. Well, just mentioning Stan, too, I meant to ask uh, earlier, but with the book that we spoke about when it first came out in hardcover, A Marvelous Life, The Amazing yeah. Story of Stan Lee, I'm seeing here it's now coming up to or just hitting three years that that came out. But, but since then... A paperback version has shown up, and I think you also mentioned uh, audiobook. I did the audiobook, um, which I wasn't expecting to do, but circumstances, you know, it worked out that I got the chance to do it, and and I and I did it, which which uh, disabused me of my notion that I didn't have a New York accent. I always thought I had sort of a kind of sophisticated Northeast um, kind of um, radio announcer or something accent. Some. I didn't think I had a specifically ethnic or regional accent, but many people have complimented my uh, audiobook, be- and, and especially your your authentic New York accent. Uh, and so, well, I guess I have a New York accent. I guess I say coffee. Um, there you go. So I, I read that, and and uh, and the book is uh, is still is still actually selling. I'm still uh, collecting royalties on it, so it seems to, um, you know, have people seem to have responded. Well, to it, and and to the audio book, but you know, as as you uh, probably know, the audio book business is as big as the print book publishing mm-hmm. business. And very often, when somebody says to me, uh, you know, I read your book, I read any book, what they mean is they heard the audio book. So I did the audio, and then from that, uh, my two two of my earlier books, Disguise as Clark Kent and Superman on the Couch, which I'd love to see back in print, but uh, so if anybody's uh, eager to do it, uh, let let's, me know. DannyFingerRoth.com. Yeah. But but I did, I did audiobooks of those two through Blackstone Publishing recently, and they literally just came out at the end of June. Very nice. Now, with respect to that, I assume maybe the answer is two part. It's um, it's volume, it's sales that you know will gauge, for example, the hardcover of A Marvelous Life to saying, okay, well, it's been this amount of time. This amount of sales have been generated. We can now move forward to the paperback version. Well, I mean, that's 
that's uh, I mean that's uh, that, that that's what, I mean yes that's true of any book and in this case um, I will give you some secrets behind the uh, curtain here um, we knew that there was another book uh, about Stan that was being written mm-hmm. and uh, we knew when it was slated to come out so uh, we very um, carefully planned for the paperback to beat the hardcover of that other book uh. to, the, to the market. Now, it ended up with the COVID. They ended up delaying that other book, and uh, we had the feel to ourselves, which actually, uh, you know, it, it is very funny. I mean, look, the other book was Abraham Reisman's um, um, Excelsior. Um, uh, true Believer. I'm sorry, True Believer. And it was go. one of Stan's catchphrases, True yep, Believer. Yep. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if I don't know if my book existing helped him, but I, and it, there's no way to know this. I mean, it's just sort of, but my, my sense of it is that uh, his book coming out gave my book uh, like a, uh, a second life, you know, and, and the paperback. It was, it was interesting. You know, that's, uh, you know, cause I don't know how you figured out or prove it. Or maybe, yeah. maybe it's just that, that Amazon thing where if you like this, maybe you'll like that. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. It's exactly right. Yeah. You know? It offsets the other or causes the opposite reaction to that action. But And then, again, with the audio book, how long, if you recall, did that take to record? And how long is the audio book, if you know? The audio book of, the, of A Marvelous Life I think it's 14 hours. So my guess would be it took probably about 28 hours um, because um, especially, you know, since, I mean, I've since met people who are professional. And, and by the way, I'm available to read your book if you want an authentic New York accent. Um, but, you know, clearly I'm not trained in that the way some professional actors and, and, and readers are. So so I think somebody who's profe- who, who is that practiced in it and maybe do it faster, but um, you know, there's, there's there's a lot of things you discover when reading your own book, uh, including which typos to get through or ideas you had that sort of, you know, you go, hmm, I should have followed up on that. Why didn't I find? You know? Yeah, <laughs> there's you know you you know reading it out loud is a very interesting experience, but. Um, and my hats off to people um, who are producers and directors and editors of audiobooks because, you know, if, you know, yes, I will take the compliment that I sounded good, but the, you know, producers, editors, directors are the people who, you know, who ch- it's almost it's almost like a sculpture. It's almost an audio sculpture. They take my various takes and. Um, mispronunciations. That's another thing. You don't know how many words that you really don't know how to pronounce correctly because you've only read them over the years. Right. Uh, I learned that. But anyway, so, you know, so hats off to people, to the people who did that for me and, and the people who do that in general because it's really an art form on its own. Just, uh, you know, like, you know, I'm talking to you now and I hesitate and I back up and I go, um, and uh, and I clear my throat. You know, and yes, I'm try- when you're reading an audio book, you know, for posterity, you try not to do that, but there's a certain amount of that you're going to do. And without uh, these talented people going through and smoothing it out, uh, man, oh man, it would be a whole, it would be a whole different thing. You know, it makes me wonder too, and I totally understand the editing part of that. I do that with interviews. I still do to this day, and hear myself and say, why did I even 
you know, it's better to say nothing in some spaces or places. But I'm just wondering, too, if it's more advantageous for the author to read, like you see the audiobooks and it says, read by the author, or is it a more laborious process for someone totally different who does the speaking part to read what somebody else wrote, then you're involving with, well, we want to make sure that these words are hit, accentuated, or put in italics, or underlined, or boldface. And I don't know, with your experience, what you found to be better or worse, or it's just it's just subjective, it depends. Yeah, it really, I, I mean, look, I think, I mean, what I did not try to do, you know, which would have been madness, at least for me, is I didn't, I didn't try to give everybody a different voice. I didn't, you know, I mean, maybe if I was quoting something from Stan, maybe I might have put a little mm-hmm. extra something in the reading, but overall it was just me reading, you know, it was my voice. I wasn't going to try to imitate or incarnate people, whereas maybe if, you know, maybe if you're reading fiction, there's more uh, of, a, of a need to do that. You know, I, 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 you know, I think like with writing a comic or creating a podcast, you know, it, it's sort of, it's flexible. You just want the listener or viewer to feel like they're living in a consistent world, you know. So um, I'm certainly not. Uh, you know, I haven't. I haven't. You know, I don't. I don't live in a car culture. I'm a. I'm a city dweller. So I'm not. You know, I think a lot of people who listen to audio books, uh, a lot are listening to them in the, in the car. So I haven't heard a million audio books, but um, you know. But I think it's. You know, say there are some radio personalities I I like to listen to, and sometimes they do voices, and sometimes they just talk like themselves. I think I think as long as whatever the world is that's consistent, you know, I, I get the sense that there's more. It's more acceptable for a nonfiction author to read the book. You think it'd be the other way around. You think you would think um, you want the author of a work of fiction to read it, but but think about it, maybe it makes more sense, (coughs) excuse me, to have somebody who's a professional actor doing that, whereas nonfiction, I guess it makes more sense to have somebody who's, you know, if if, if by writing a nonfiction book you're saying I'm the expert in whatever the topic is, you know, then 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 it's probably a more organic fit to have the author uh, read that. You know, there were, there were, you know, I, I, there were one or two people, uh, a guy named Eric Bailey, specifically a professor from Arkansas, who, um, <coughs> who I would see a lot at conventions, and he's friends with, uh, with my friend Travis, uh, Langley. And, uh, he was, uh, really always urging me. He was probably, probably he was the person most urging me to do audiobooks. And, um, and I guess doing the Stan one proved to me and to anybody who I'd, you know, try to convince to do the other books that I could do it. So, um, so I, I really owe Eric uh, Eric Bailey uh, a lot of thanks for sort of encouraging me in that direction. Well, for by the way, you mentioned with the whole Stan not doing a Stan impression, you should have put extra Celsior on it. Yes, I should have put extra Celsius out of that. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but okay. Yeah, well, same here. So an extra Celsius. Yeah, that's good. But backing up to the boo, radio Peter, thing for... Boo. Yeah, well, you put it on that, not me. Yes. I was okay to let it go, but you had to keep going. Uh, Danny, when it comes to radio and you're listening to radio, is there a certain type that you prefer to, as far as programming, uh, from a listener 
perspective. Wow, that's uh, again, this is a question I've <laughs> never saw that one coming. I know that's my inclination. You know, it's uh, I you know I'm one of those people who has NPR on all day. You know, I mean, so that's sort of mm-hmm. the background. Well, I can't have I can't have any. I can't have anything with words on it when I'm trying to write. You know, that's sort of, that's too distracting. Um, and uh, not that I love everything on NPR, but it, uh, for the most part, it beats the alternative. But I grew up listening to um, uh, radio monologists. Um, I'm going to date myself here, but uh, you can probably figure out how old I am anyway there. There was a radio station um, called WBAI in New York, mm-hmm. and uh, there was specifically a guy named Steve Post, who uh, was kind of um, invented everything that people think Howard Stern invented. Um, the, these uh, Steve Post, uh, Bob Fass, Larry Josephson, Mike Fader, Lynn Samuels, uh, Paul Gorman. Uh, Leonard Lopate. These were these were these were my radio heroes, mm-hmm. and these were people who um, managed to create a public persona that was not unrelated to their private persona, but it involved they you know they had some elements of stand-up comedy, some elements of philosophy, some elements of just kind of free-form rambling. Um, uh, spontaneous dialogue, some structured storytelling where they would really come with a beginning, middle, and end, and uh, you know, and 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 they were sort of descended from uh, people like Gene Shepard, Long John Nebel. I mean, I know these are ancient history names, but this was this was this was the, the what was literally in the air and on the air when I was growing up and I was a teenager. Um, I don't know if I mentioned Larry Josephson, another one, um, and there was there was something about it that, to me, was hypnotic. You know, um, so that um, you know goes back to people like Lenny Bruce, Mort Sahl, um, a certain spontaneous um, and yet structured way of talking that uh, that always appealed to me so that's the, that, that's that's when i think of radio and my love affair with radio which which is a lifelong thing it's more that uh than music you know it's really the human voice it may have to do with the fact that my parents were both of uh, voice professionals my father was a professional singer <clears throat> my mother was a um speech therapist um and and um you know, and they had the ability actually to speak without New York accents, even though they were both uh, born here. You know, so maybe I thought I'd inherited that, but I didn't. So that—that's the—that's—that's um, that's what appeals to me. It, it's funny, and and it paradoxically, it's probably more about me than you wanted to know. Um, I will listen to talk radio like that to fall asleep, even though I'm interested in what they're saying. I'm not bored by what they're saying, but I find the speech, if I, you know, of the person that I enjoy listening to, mm-hmm. um, soothing and re- and relaxing. Whereas if I'm listening to music, 
something I get uh, charged up and caught up in the music in a different way, and I usually uh, can't fall asleep. You know, it makes perfect sense, just like to the effect of even, like, for example, my wife who has to have the television on to go to sleep to. Or in your case, yeah, and I totally understand how, like you said, your parents involved in speech and so on, that that would naturally be something that you would uh, grow an affinity to. So I, I get that. I, growing up myself, my brother and I would always be woken up by my mom listening to uh, WNEW in New York City and Ted Brown and playing the big band stuff and similar, you know, related things like right, that. Right, right. Yeah, so, no, it's a, well, I guess a lot of it is probably goes back to childhood. I mean, what depending, even the people I liked on television, you know, were... Um, where people, in, in retrospect, I guess that's why they were on television, you know, or radio. Uh, a lot of them had come from radio, but they had this uh, this authoritative way of speaking, but uh, but uh, authoritative, but not condescending. You know, I mm-hmm. mean that. Uh, yeah. Um, and yeah, it does go back, you know, uh, to the old time TV. Hosts, um, Steve Allen, Jack Parr, Carson, um, you know, and even maybe in a weird way, maybe even goes back to my lifelong love of uh, Groucho Marx, you know, because Groucho, you know, he wasn't a monologist in that way, but, but certainly he was verbal. I mean, Groucho, not just verbal, if you watch him, you can see he was an incredible yeah, uh, physical performer and dancer and, and uh, physical comedian, but what he's best known for, and of course, what you you sort of hear that uh, that that um, so, you know some something where somebody's saying something that you need to listen to, even if it's just a wisecrack, you know. And it has nothing to do with the fact that Groucho grew up two blocks from where I grew up. <laughs> hey, they, look at that! More than we need, more than we knew about you. That's that's great yes. stuff. I I appreciate that. Of course, that now, info. now you've got the information for all my secret password questions. You know. <laughs> No, I think I wanted to ask, too, about one of the other books and uh, the Rough Guide to Graphic Novels, if we hadn't asked about that in a previous interview, oh, okay. what that what that deals with. Uh, <laughs> well, it was, very, it was funny. Um, oh, yeah. Well, you can judge if it's funny. I thought it was funny. They did a Rough Guide to Superheroes, and they didn't call me. <laughs> it was like... Cause Who I'm, did I they call? Book. I mean, you know, you know, I don't know, and I'm sure it was a perfectly talented, intelligent person. But it, but it did, but it did get, pu- <laughs> did it get published? I mean, you yeah, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It was, um, well, those rough guides, they don't do them anymore. But they were, they of course had the rough guides to whatever city or country. But they also had the rough guides, uh, culture, yeah, pop culture guides, you know, sort of music, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I think you know for whatever reason they don't do those anymore. But they, you know, and. Uh, you know, I don't remember who did the superhero one. I'm sure it was fine, but you know, my main concern was that, hey, what about me? <laughs> you know? yeah. So, mm-hmm. so when I got the call from an editor there to say, would you like to do the rough guide to graphic novels, everything but superheroes? I said, okay. <laughs> well, graphic, you know what? Uh, graphic novels very much a part when it looks like I see 2008 when it was published. That that graphic novels very much in the medium, in the vernacular, and in the language of people knowing what this could be as opposed to when it, when they first started. So, you know, how does that, um, like you said, it's a pop culture thing, I guess, so I wasn't sure what, what it kind of, you know, mentions well, here it, and there. It, it, um, you know, it, 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 right, it's when graphic novels, well, I guess graphic novels have been around for a long time, and they were popularized, um, you know, by, by Will Eisner, but, you know, with people were doing them before, <clears throat> before Will. Yes, I am 
a consultant to the Will Eisner Studios and Foundation, and I do run Will Eisner Week, an annual celebration of the work of Will Eisner, free speech, and uh, the graphic novel. But anyway, um, <laughs> Isn't that um, so I mean, I, you know, so I, I certainly was familiar with not, you know, uh, more than familiar. You know, a lot of non-superhero stuff I loved. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm the world's biggest Harvey Pekar fan. You know, so I got, you know, that actually that actually led to my that book led to my friendship with Harvey because I wrote, you know, my, my true feelings about how much I loved American Splendor, and Harvey called me to thank me. It's funny you know. because Picar every I think with the exception of the one we did with you with uh, Jim Salakrup, Picar has come up at least once every time you've been on, and I love that because Harvey is one of the most unsung heroes in the realm of comics. I adore the man's work, and I wish he was still around today to tell some more stories. Me too, you know, and and, uh, and I was really, you know, I did a, an evening with him, I must have described it, at the Evo Institute in 2009. Um, I did uh, a three-night series called Comics and the Jewish American Dream, one night with Jules Pfeiffer, one night with Al Jaffe, and one night with Harvey Picar, and they were all incredible but the you know it, it, it was just uh, really uh, an honor and just a lot of fun to, to be on stage with Harvey and get some questions answered that I never knew but anyway back to the book um, so I had to read a lot of graphic novels and uh, and write about them I mean the the coolest thing a it's funny that on the cover uh, the main image is like a superhero battle I thought that was hilarious that after telling me that Anything but superheroes, they have <laughs> a superhero battle in the government. Um, but I got to work with Roger Langridge. You know, they said, uh, you know, they said we want to have a graphic novel. You know, which really is just—I mean, it was only like twenty-something pages, so it was a—it was a comic book, or you know, we want to have some piece of comic book slash graphic novel, brand new in it, and and. Uh, so I wrote uh, a script, and I, at that point, I didn't realize how what a significant figure Roger was in the uh, in, in the graphic novel world, but he he was and is. And um, and so I wrote this story that sort of was a meta story, a graphic novel about the history of graphic novels and and why they were important. So that that was a, that was sort of a cool thing, and uh, um, yeah, I mean it's it's it's. It, the hundred best anything is like a. Uh, I don't know if we did a hundred or how many. Uh, you know, you know, so, uh, you know. There was mo it's mostly stuff I wanted. It's some stuff that the publisher thought needed to be there. Um, and you know, so I mean, you read the stuff and you and you write about it. You know, it, you know. I think I guess if you read it carefully, you can you can see where my passions are for stuff like American Splendor and. And Spiegelman stuff and and uh, Crumb stuff. You know, you can you can you can certainly see uh, what I'm, I'm maybe I'm more interested in than uh, than anything else. But that you know that was so. On the one hand, you know, it was it was a labor of love. On the other hand, it was a, it was a freelance gig that I was glad to get and it paid well. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, like the editor, it was a you know a guy named uh, Sean Costello. I think his name was very nice guy and. Uh, yeah, overall, it was a pleasant experience, and I'm not, I'm not sure. Do you have any specific questions about it, or just uh... No, I was just curious as to what it, you know, helped explain if people weren't familiar with the graphic novel, broke down, et cetera. And just as a side note, and not to be creepy or eerie, although those are interesting magazines, <laughs> that that I saw we, from for radio here, we get 
a, a prep service with, you know, this day in history and so on. I think we were within a day, if it wasn't today, maybe it was yesterday, of the passing of Mr. Picar, and I don't I remember believe, what, I, I, what I year. Believe it's, I believe it's today. I believe it's October 12th. Hmm. Oh, boy, more than 10 years ago. Yeah. Eesh, more than 10 and less than 15, but I don't. Well, was, he mm-hmm. was definitely... In 2009, he was. I think he died in 2010, actually. Okay, I think that I think, sounds I, right. I think he died just about a year after uh, he and I did that event in New York together. He did pass in 2010 because he passed the year before I got back into comics, and he's one of those I wish I got to meet him and then Gerber two years beforehand. It's like, hey, everyone you idolize. Can't meet him, Peter. Well, <laughs> well the American Splendor movie isn't. I mean, look, if you've read Harvey's stuff, you met a side of Harvey. I mean, yeah. I think I think like anybody who does personal work, I think he held some stuff back. The Quitter is very interesting. The the long form graphic novel he did with Dean Haspiel. I think I think I think I think in in a lot of ways Harvey was at his most honest in that. Um, he sort of took a lot of the bits and pieces that he'd sort of hinted at and. Uh, and and, and uh, or, or or maybe not into that stated blatantly in his other work, but I think the I think the quitter really um, kind of put it together in a way that he hadn't quite before, and it filled in some gaps, and and I think was was more more honest. Uh, well, not more honest, but had additional honesty. That stuff that maybe he danced around or avoided dealing with in in in. In, in his uh, in the comics or the shorter stories, I, I think uh, it's pretty it's a pretty courageous work. You know, uh, I don't know if you've read it. It's it's really uh, it's really something. Now, on the uh, previous episode we had you on when Picar was discussed, we also talked about how he was at one point courted to work on Howard the Duck. And you know, what is a character that you feel would have been tailor made at Marvel for Harvey, other than Howard? And who would have been one that no one would expect, but it would have made perfect, like, it, not perfect sense, but a weird fit, but it, he could make it work? Huh. I don't know. I mean, look, he, I think, he didn't he write a story with a thing in it? I, he wrote a short one, I think, that Dean, maybe Dean drew. Yeah, in Strange Tales. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I mean, Harvey really, uh... I don't know. I, I, I think Harvey loved superhero comics as a kid, but I think he had no interest or no use for them as an as an adult. I, I think I think it was just. Uh, so I, I I don't I, I I think the answer is nothing. I don't I don't think there's any superhero comic that. I think Harvey wrote the comics he wanted to write. You know I don't I don't I don't think he was waiting to be called on to write Spider-Man. That was that was not what Harvey was about. You know so I mean I don't. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, uh, that, uh, that question, you know, for me doesn't really compute. Yeah. Do you, do you think there's something he would have been, you know, uh... Imagine a brute force, or X-force. Um, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you, you stumped me there, I don't know. Yeah, Let's leave it at that. Mm-hmm. I, I do think, you know, Harvey would find a great way to utilize the pockets, you know, of all the characters in X-Force. Like, he'd give them things to put them in. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? Uh... <laughs> yes, we have a Peter. <laughs> well, Danny, as always, we do appreciate your time and uh, 
Just catching up on stuff that we love to talk about with those who made it happen. You've been doing it since 76, and we, again, 77, appreciate 77, 77. Uh, they're wrong on Wikipedia. Uh, they on are. Wikipedia. They are. Look at I that. I did not. I never worked for, for Seaboard, Atlas Seaboard. I had, I, yeah, and as assistant to Larry Lieber. Yes, and at Marvel, in the British Department of Marvel. After, after Atlas Seaboard okay. uh, went out of business, Larry came to Marvel and, and was the uh, editor of the British books. And then I came in as his assistant in 77. There. See, this is like the same thing when we go through our Marvel trivia book of 2,500 questions and we say what, where we find out what the answer is, and we have Tom Brevoort, and he says, No, that's exactly wrong. <laughs> I did that. Yeah, yeah. And no matter how many times you correct it or ask your friends to correct it, there's always somebody who insists that, uh, that they're right, that I worked. I never worked at Seaboard. I, you know, in some ways I wish I had. It seemed like an interesting place. But, you know, um, technically, this. This could be something we used to cite this episode. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so this might be able to be the way we finally eliminate that on your uh, Wikipedia. Danny Fingeroth established 1977. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if I say it, does it count? Or do, or do one of you guys have to say it? <laughs> I think it's a big 45th anniversary now, isn't it? Uh, I guess it is. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I guess I started when I was six years old, so that puts me at a little over 50. That's exactly right. So the other thing I want to plug, since you asked, is that uh, I'm writing, uh, I have pivoted from my Stan Lee uh, biography to uh, writing a biography of um, Jack Ruby, not Jack Kirby, Jack Ruby, uh, the guy who killed Lee Harvey Oswald. The working title is Wild Card, Jack Ruby's Assault on History, and it's going to be published uh, next year, the 60th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, by um, Chicago Review Press. So that is, that is the plan. And if you're going to the San Diego Con, um, I uh, will be there unless the COVID becomes so bad that, uh, you know, that life changes immensely. But the plan is for me to be there, and I'm slated to do a whole bunch of panels, either be on them or moderate them. Are you going to be uh, doing signings at uh, Comic-Con? I have one official signing. Um, there's a spot. I'm a, I'm a special guest, so there's a spotlight on me. Uh, moderated by uh, animation guru Jerry Beck. Ooh, I love Jerry. And uh, well, Jerry's my ex-cousin. He's uh, my ex-wife's cousin. Really? So, um, oh. ex -cousin. so he. Uh, so um, I actually moderated his special uh, spotlight this, several years ago. So he's been kind enough to return the favor. So Jerry will be moderating, and uh, whenever that is, I think it's Friday. So, like a half hour after that, I'll be in the um, autograph area doing autographs. I'm going to try to arrange a couple of more. I don't. I'm not going to have an artist alley table though. I just. I decided uh, um, that I'd be better. You know, that that it would be better for me to do uh, to walk around and bump into people and uh, do panels and, uh, and stuff like that. But. Um, but I will be at least one hour in the autograph area. I'm going to try to arrange something with a store or two as well. As long as you're not bumping into people while they're carrying, like, heavy things or, like, plates of soup. You don't want to do that. That's, that, you know, uh, when you're right, you're right. There's some, there's some advice that is timeless, and I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> May I recommend, by the way, next time you're at Artist Alley in New York Comic Con, yell hot soup coming through. It works. <laughs> I did. It. I did it. I did it in 2019. It works. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, that that is. You know, I've learned something from this uh, from this uh, interview. So thank you. All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you for having me on again. And uh, everybody, stay well.
Likewise, and again, we do appreciate the time and your continued work and and all that you've uh, imparted to us and continue to do. Well, uh, you're welcome, <laughs> or something. But but uh, uh, everybody, um, really, just uh, stay well. The COVID ain't over, so uh, be careful out there and uh, and live long and prosper. For the Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Danny Fingeroth. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! <laughs>